0: I'm pleased to welcome you to this event on using Malawi's community-based childcare centers to implement an agriculture and nutrition intervention. This is jointly organized by IFPRI and University of Washington's led project on strengthening economic evaluation for multi-sectoral strategies for nutrition, or SEAMS, it's a little easier. Um, So this policy seminar focuses on research undertaken in Malawi by IFPRI, uh, the University of Washington, University of Malawi, and Save the Children. And this was in support of the government's early childhood development program. So I want to thank those of you who are here today in the room, and those of you who are joining online for a live stream, and we also have people who will be watching this as a recorded event later. So welcome everyone. Um, I was given the the pleasure of of just a, a brief opening remark. So this research is of great interest to me because it adds to our growing body of evidence that IFRI's been generating in several projects on the important role of community interventions like childcare centers, farmer groups, and self-help groups um, as a platform for information around improving outcomes in agriculture, nutrition, and health. So these institutions have some unique advantages because they can draw on community ties to strengthen the effective delivery of the information across these sectors. Um, We're particularly interested in seeing today how childcare centers perform in this role, given their importance as a bridge for child nutrition and health from the 1,000 days period into primary school. So we're looking forward to that. We have an exciting program for you today. Before we begin, I'd like to actually introduce our panelists, we have four panelists, two discussants, and uh, closing remarks. So our panelists include, uh, in order, Ayesha Twalibu, She's an IFPRI consultant and formerly with Save the Children. Ali Jello, Allo Jelly, sorry, Allo. <laughs>
1: that was,
0: Allo is my neighbor, and apparently I'm just learning his name. He's a research fellow in the Poverty, Health, and Nutrition Division at IFPRI. Um, Amy Margolis is a research consultant at IFPRI and former IFPRI staff. Welcome back, Amy. Um, Mary Delamonte is Senior Program Officer at Research for, or sorry, Results for Development, R4D. Those are our four panelists. After that, we have two discussants. Uh, Julie Royal Bergeron is a nutrition specialist in the Human Development Network, uh, their health and nutrition population unit at the World Bank. And Natalie Rochnik is a senior nutrition advisor at Save the Children. After the panel, dis- the panel presentation and discussants, we'll have about a half an hour for Q&A and discussion. And then Harold Alderman will have closing remarks. Harold's a senior research fellow also in the Poverty Health and Nutrition Division at IFPRI. So, without further ado, Aisha, over to you. Thanks.
2: Thank you, Dan. Um, good afternoon, all. My name is Aisha, as already introduced, and I formerly worked for Save the Children on this uh, program that we're going to be discussing. Um, I was, my role in Save the Children was to coordinate and manage the NEEP program evaluation uh, within the communities. And I was there from the inception to the conclusion. And this was in Zomba, Malawi. We started in 2015, and the program was concluded in 2017. And what I'm going to be doing today is to give you an overview of this program so that you have an idea of where we started before we get into the impact evaluation itself. As an introduction, um, the early childhood and development implementation in Malawi is guided by the nation policy on ECD. This policy promotes a comprehensive integrated and holistic approach for all ECD programs and services for children under eight, their parents, as well as their caregivers. These programs and services that we're talking about, they are provided through what we call ECD centers, also known as community-based child care centers and through parenting groups. These ECD centers or CBCCs Um, Rural preschools that are owned and managed by parents and community members. And they're there to provide a safe, stimulating and learning environment for these preschool children that are aged between three to five years old. Currently in Malawi we have about 12,000 CBCCs across the country and they're saving almost 45% of the preschool population. A key factor with these CBCCs is that they provide what we call a mid-morning meal, which essentially is a maize porridge, and this happens in the morning when the schools are in session. However, there was a study that was conducted by the World Bank that found that the main challenge with these CBCCs was a lack of food, And because of this lack of food, children are absent from school, which eventually results into CBCC's closing. And this study actually found that about 50% of the CBCC's had closed around that time. There was another study, however, that did find that even with these challenges, when you have community um, commitment, you know, the. coupled with basic training, it can actually help communities prepare more nutritious meals for these children, their siblings, as well as this being replicated at the household level. Now building on these research findings that I've talked about in the experience from a livelihoods program, Save the Children and the University of Malawi um, developed an intervention package that integrated ECD, nutrition and agriculture. This intervention package involved two main aspects, trainings as well as inputs. The trainings were on best agricultural practices, feeding practices, nutritious meals, as well as diets for preschool children, as well as the younger siblings. And there was also a component of village savings and loans just to help boost the communities with their economics. Now, for the inputs that were provided, the communities were given startup seeds that included biofortified orange maize, orange flesh, sweet potatoes. They also got vegetables such as amaranthas and carrots, as well as legumes that included uh, kidney beans and granuts, just to mention a few. It should be noted that with this intervention there were no food transfers. And it was mainly driven by community level actors that I've touched on, the parents of these preschools as well as the CBCC actors. To conclude this session, we're going to play a video that will give you an insight from these targeted beneficiaries because we thought it would be best to actually hear from them as well. Thank you.
3: and the and
1: Improving early childhood development is the key to making sure children realize their full potential. Here in Malawi, there's a network of 10,000 community-managed preschools, but one of the main obstacles to keeping them functioning is the lack of food. Supported by the PATH and DFID nutrition programme, Save the Children is helping communities near Zomba in southern Malawi to provide healthy food to children in preschools. And at home. We are
2: contributing to the early childhood and development by ensuring that preschools remain open and functional throughout the year. Uh, we are actually doing this by providing support to these preschools to grow nutritious crops, by providing trainings
3: uh,
2: in best agricultural practices, but also providing
3: a diverse range of crops that they grow. I don't have a dollar. I don't have a dollar. I don't have a dollar. I The
1: project also shows parents how to provide nutritious food at home, helping them expand the range of crops they grow and use new recipes.
3: Underpinning
1: the project is a microfinance scheme that ensures its sustainability in the long term
3: Dima gulia chilolimozib po swingstand jamu ndugu burekana nduguudi digabangea ma business si mabanja ma bunge matu jamasimene si zomwe dina maweza kugeni kapena ni kabeni zongo ngorobangea muzib dima tandi zilala ubere kaskofani school ugulia manufumu mago ubere zolenbela kama sana ndugu
1: the impact evaluation conducted with support from the International Food Policy Research Institute and the University of Malawi is already showing encouraging results.
2: It's really
3: been amazing um, to actually see that the, the changes that the community is making. Kumbali parents were receiving our drink, my friends were the berplants. We were
4: Good afternoon. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. So uh, we stepped into Malawi, now we're going to step back a little bit, and and, and I'll talk to you a little bit about the work we've been doing in the NIPI research um, program. Um, And on behalf of the NIPI research team, part of us are are here actually presenting over the next few minutes. I'm going to give you an overview of of, of the uh, work we've been conducting in Malawi. And this Im- was gonna focus on two aspects, the trial. So the trial itself was an impact evaluation of this ECD-based center in- behavior change intervention that involved communities, and trainings, and engagement around improving diets, nutrition, and development of young children. And then we're gonna step back and take a look at the sustainability study- survey, which was geared at looking one year after the intervention had ended and one year after the trial had ended to see if any of the impacts that were found during the trial period were sustained after the trial has ended. I'm not gonna show you too much data, but there's, uh, for follow-up, there's two, two articles in the General of Nutrition that have all, all the numbers I'm gonna talk about, and there's also pos- poli- policy briefs that accompany uh, this work. In a nutshell, so as, as Aisha and the video showed, the idea was really to have, and thanks to Jamit and Jamie for this great vi- um, particular visual, the idea was to have these CBCCs, or these ECD platforms, as a hub of a wheel. So essentially, they were really the platform where we could reach these preschoolers but also reach their parents, and really provide a, a way into getting to households and the broader community to try and, and shift some of the behaviors related to agricultural production and, uh, and diets, essentially, uh, with a goal of trying to diversify both what was being produced and what was being eaten, particularly around a basket of nutritious foods that uh, Aisha mentioned. This slide here summarizes the pathways where we expect sort of to see the changes you know, from the activities that the program is implementing to the impacts that we'd like to measure. So it's pretty complicated, but first thing to highlight is the, the purple sort of box, which is sort of the control activities. So the control is not pure naive control, but it's actually the standard of care that the government is providing across the country. And it's a basic set of uh, activities around the CBCC and parenting groups, and these were found to be already effective in the PECD evaluation that World Bank funded. So we picked on that and decided to add, based on the formative work that Save the Children had done, the specific package of nutrition and agriculture uh, activities. On the one hand, we were trying to improve the way, the quality and the regularity of the meal service that was being provided by the, the community, improve farming practices, and build on the sort of childcare and stimulation activities that were going on in the E C D space, with a goal of producing more nutritious uh, crops and foods, improving the diets not just in preschoolers but at home as well, and then support the sort of early childhood goals of the sort of preschool attendance and early learning, with a goal of improving child development, improving nutrition and overall uh, food security. The impact evaluation was just cluster randomized trials. We essentially randomized two groups uh, of 30 CBCCs each, or 30 ECDs, into two groups. One with this enhanced ECD intervention and the control with the standard of care that the government was providing. About 1,200 households that we followed over a course of one year as part of the trial and one year after that as part of the sustainability study, including both the preschoolers, their caregivers, and their younger siblings. So I'm just gonna give you an overview of what we found in, in, in a sort of qualitative way and um, during the NIPI trial. We essentially found that um, marginally significant results in terms of improving parenting practices. So parents were starting to pick up improved practices, and uh, both in terms of child stimulation, but we, we, um, they were not significant at the 5% level. What we found was improved preschool meals, both in terms of the quality and the frequency of the delivery, and um, we, though we didn't measure farming techniques, we saw that there were improved production, practice, improved production, improved production diversity, improved production of these nutritious foods that were being promoted, and we saw improved diets, both in terms of the adequacy of the diet of preschoolers, the nutrient intake of preschoolers, the di- dietary diversity, but also the dietary diversity of the younger siblings. And that was the first sort of insight that we were getting, there was some really nice spillovers going on, and this platform idea was really reaching different beneficiaries. We also got um, uh, an impact on caregiver knowledge in terms of nutritious foods, and um, uh, diversification of diets and things like that. But we found no changes in terms of early learning and preschool attendance, but we actually picked up an effect on linear growth in the younger siblings. Despite not seeing any changes in growth in the preschoolers themselves, the younger siblings actually grew taller than uh, their counterparts in the control group, and we found a decrease in stunting that was about 18%, so pretty substantive and no change in in child development in preschoolers, which was all we were measuring, child development, during the trial period. And we found a marginally significant effect, actually, on the prevalence of poverty as well. So pretty remarkable in terms of all the stuff that we were seeing. And we were all really incredibly surprised. We thought it was a good idea, but not, you know, not this this effect. (laughs) So we went back and said, okay, what's happened a year after that? So we got funding from the Gates Foundation that we're really interested too, and say, okay, How many of these effects were sustained one year after we stopped the intervention? What we found, actually, this should be a a dark green. So we found that the the changes in in parenting practices were actually now significant at the 5% level and were actually across all the four different categories. So overall parenting uh, practices, stimulation practices, positive, increased positive practices for parenting, and decrease in negative practices. So getting a sense that parents were really getting bought into the whole idea, but it took a bit of time. Unfortunately, some of these effects were not sustained, so the effects on preschool meals, uh, the control group caught up in some ways with the treatment group, so there were no significant effects there, but in terms of agriculture, we found some evidence of sustained effects of production of these nutritious foods, and also production diversity, no changes in terms of the diets, no changes in terms of the early learning, and... um, Though we didn't see growth in the younger siblings anymore, so there was sort of regression to the mean, and we'll see that a little later, we saw that the preschoolers now had, we had picked up a significant effect in terms of their height, possibly suggesting that these older kids were responding to these improved sort of diets, but taking a little longer to respond, which is also plausible. But what we did that we didn't do at baseline was actually measure the child development in the younger siblings. And what we found is that the kids that had grown taller after one year after this additional year, they had higher child development scores across uh, three of the four uh, Malawi development assessment tool domains, and also the, the the score in aggregate. We have a wealth of qualitative data I'm not gonna talk about, but really a lot of insights that these is sort of the saliency of this diversification of diet and production was really effective. And just highlighting, you know, the one, one couple of graphs I'm gonna show you, this is just a trajectory for the, the younger siblings in terms of their growth. The green curve is the Nipi group, the yellow uh, curve is the control group, and you can kind of see already, Despite you know a baseline, no differences between the two. After six months, the curve starts to diverge at 12 months, which is the trial endpoint, a substantive difference in height for age. But that difference kind of closes down at after one year of trial implementation. So at two years. But what I'm showing you here is the child development results at two years. So we go back to those same kids at 24 months, and we see that you know, in green, the, the, the child development scores for the, the NEPI kids, these are the six to twenty-four months at baseline compared to the yellow kids <laughs> the control group kids. And the FX sizes in red, so a pretty strong evidence that this is not spurious. It's not sort of this is actually a signal in terms of that investment that we are making in, in terms of their health, growth, and development was possibly um, a r- real signal. So in conclusion, despite the short time frame, we find that these school, preschools actually are pretty effective in terms of scaling up these agriculture nutrition interventions, and uh, the plausibility of these impressive results is actually backed up. But because we found results across all these complex pathways. And the evidence pretty justifies our case in terms of using preschools as a platform to scale up this intervention. However, we find that there's also evidence that there's possibilities to improve the effectiveness, particularly if you're taking that longer term view by making tweaks and possibly adding refreshers to try and get some of those effects that you see in year one sustained in the second year. And But how do we really maximize these investments? How do we make these returns um, more sustainable and this is the, the points that Amy will now be talking about in the next slide. Before I conclude I'd like to thank the research partners Save the Children University of Malawi and the other uh, government of Malawi of course and particularly um, the late professor Ephraim Chiwa who was uh, integral in terms of ensuring that we had good quality data and made this study possible. Thank you.
5: Hi everyone. Um, I'm going to build upon what ALO is presenting for the first um, two years of this RCT. Um, We've been continuing to work on the NEAP project and um, looking at different ways to look at all the data that we have. And so one of the things that we really wanted to look into, as ALO said, is finding out about maximizing the returns of this program. Um, So we are, we've been conducting an economic evaluation of this intervention. Um, This project is actually under a separate Heading. It's called Strengthening Economic Evaluation for Multisectoral Strategies, or SEAMs. We're working with some great partners at the University of Washington, um, Carol Levin and Chris Kemp in particular, among others. Um, So I will present uh, the study objectives. So first we wanted to estimate the intervention costs and look at cost efficiency. Um, We also wanted to understand the cost-effectiveness of this intervention, and then as well as the return on investment in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Our methodological approach, um, we are developing a standard approach under the SEAMS project. So we're actually looking at a variety of different interventions um, to look at these different cost measures. So we already had the cost data from the NEEP trial, so we were retrofitting this data to our new standardized framework. Um, So I'm not going to go really into detail there, um, into the framework, but there's going to be more information and more data and results coming out of this project as time goes on. Um, But essentially, we're retrofitting this data to the SEAMS framework. We have a series of standardized codes for our costing approach. um, And this included primarily integrating financial and economic costs. So we were valuing opportunity costs for government, volunteers, as well as beneficiaries. Um, which we know is very important in this particular project because the communities are so actively contributing uh, to the design of the program. Um, We also had to develop allocation rules for shared costs, which in terms of multi-sectoral programs are very important because they are integrated interventions, so some of the costs apply across various uh, program activity categories. Um, So here, of course, we're looking at total costs, which is the total cost divided by the number of target population reached. In terms of the economic evaluation, we're looking at cost-effectiveness, primarily at premature deaths um, using the Live Save tool, which was developed at Johns Hopkins University. Um, we also looked at stunting cases averted, as well as disability-adjusted life years. So that's looking at premature mortality and morbidity due to stunting. In terms of the benefit-cost analysis, we valued three streams, mortality, lifetime productivity, and agricultural production. Oops. And we use sensitivity analyses, adjusting different value of statistical life calculations as well as discount rates. And here I'm going to bring us back to a slide that you've seen before, Um, just to point out that one important component of doing the cost analysis was costing all the activities as well as valuing the outcomes of the program. So here, this is kind of a universe of different outcomes that could be looked at in these type of um, very complex interventions. Uh, For the cost effectiveness analysis, these in red were highlighting the different outcomes that we were looking at. For the disability adjusted life years, they're here in blue, the different outcomes as well, death averted, stunting, and illness averted. And then with the cost benefit analysis, in green, stunting, death averted, and production of nutrient rich foods. So here are first results. Um, so this is the total cost of the program here, um, the bulk of which, of course, was uh, supported by Save the Children, who is implementing the intervention. Um, and what, what's really interesting to look at here is using this standardized approach, um, it enables us to look at the cost in, in several different ways, one being on the left side, uh, breaking down by input type. Um, so here we can see, for example, that 40% of inputs were directed toward personnel costs. Um, So these are very interesting to look at in terms of thinking about tweaking implementation and program design. Um, It's also very informative when we break down over here on the right-hand side by activity. Um, We're able to see what are the cost drivers um, in the program. So here we have the variety of different activities in this program, including everything from materials development to training, distribution of the actual inputs or seeds for these different um, foods, and we can take away here, for example, that about 50 percent of the cost by activity were allocated to training, which makes sense, because there was a lot of nutrition and agriculture training for households. And then of particular importance here is 16 percent of total cost by activity were actually contributed by the households themselves, so it was quite a significant community contribution, and that was both in in in-kind donations of food as well as in terms of caregiving and labor. Um, We also see down here we're able to break down by startup and recurrent costs, so about a quarter of the costs were dedicated to startup and then the rest were recurrent. In terms of cost efficiency, we see here on the left the total cost of the program um, divided by the preschool children that were participating in this program, so we get about $182 per child participating in the program. And if you include all the beneficiaries that have been reached by the program, including other members of the household, that cost drops to about $40 per beneficiary, and then by household about $200 per household. In terms of cost effectiveness, this is really nice because we can look at, um, for example, the number of stunting cases averted by this program. So over 300 cases of stunting were averted by the program. Um, as well as 12 deaths, and then we're also looking at disability-adjusted life years, and here we see there are two different calculations, one using a standard life expectancy and the other with a Malawi life expectancy, so somewhere between 360 and 380. Um, When we're looking at incremental cost-effectiveness ratio estimates, so really how much would it cost to avert another case or another unit of the outcome? We see here, for example, about $569 per case of stunting averted. In the benefit-cost analysis, um, we did basically three scenarios, a low case, a base, and a high. Um, So these varied according to the discount rate that we used and the VSL calculation. Um, But it's really nice to look at this because we can see in the lowest case it's about a 2.8 cost-benefit ratio up to um, 19 in the highest. Um, case. And putting this in a broader discussion, uh, this is showing where our results fall um, in the green bar relative to other types of interventions that have done cost-benefit analyses. So we see that the NEET program actually falls in quite high in the range, um, and so it's very good evidence that it's been cost-effective. Um, So, yeah, so these are the results we've had so far with the costing and we have some more information about how uh, these results are going to be used and how they can be very effective in tweaking program design and thinking through how this can be applied uh, to policy situations. (laughs)
6: Great. Hi everyone. Uh, My name is Mary DeLamonte from Results for Development, and I'll be speaking to a case study on how evidence informs decision making, um, and really speaking to some of the research that has already been presented, and thinking about how that's been used in Malawi, and thinking about the scale or nutrition and ECD programming in Malawi. Um, and this, is, this, was, this case study was done through the SEAMS Nutrition Initiative, which has already been mentioned. Um, Amy spoke to um, some of the technical work that's coming out of that effort, the guidance and um, new data being generated across different multisectoral nutrition programs. And r role as, in, in this partnership with the other organizations on this slide is really thinking about the policy relevance and how do we ensure the outputs being generated or really speak to um, the policy users and stakeholders that are using this um, evidence. Okay, so just to start by saying so the government of Malawi has made nutrition and ECD a priority, um, and towards the end of 2018, has committed or recommitted to the scale up of nutrition actions through their ECD platform through an uh, investment with the World Bank that are called investing in the early years. Um, And this includes three components shown here Uh, one on community based nutrition. And early simulation interventions delivered through the care groups. These are parenting groups that Aisha mentioned. A second component on center based early learning, nutrition, and health interventions through CBCCs, so the care, um, uh, the, the care center, the preschool centers that uh, w- was also mentioned. And then an, a third investment in multi sectoral coordination capacity and system strengthening. And so what's exciting here is that the intervention, the integrated, intervention uh, that was delivered through NEEP that was found to be successful, it, it got a lot of buy-in from the government and it's it, it being integrated within this investment and really seen as kind of scaled up um, through this. Um, so taking, uh, zooming out a little bit, um, there's been an evolution of research in Malawi on nutrition sensitive actions through the ECD platform in agriculture. Um, and and a lot of foundational research that influenced the design of the NEEP program that was delivered by Save the Children. And Aisha also kind of started the conversation with touching on some of these points. Um, So the findings from NEEP and also from research that influenced that and other research Um, was really generated and helped support government-led discussions on what to do next, essentially, and thinking about how to advance the ECD programming in the country, Um, which, as I mentioned, led to, towards the end of 2018, this early year's investment. And so this case study that uh, I'm speaking to, we kind of had the look at, okay, how has this research been used, um, with the aim to understand what were the key enabling factors that informed and led to this government's decision to to scale up the program, really anchored in this World Bank investing in the early years uh, program with uh, the government. Um, And we did this through desk review, as well as consultations with uh, stakeholders in the government of Malawi, the sectors involved in, in the program. Uh, And we found four key enabling factors that emerged. Um, So first, having a strong base of evidence on impact and economic rationale, which we heard a little bit about already. Um, Government leadership and multi-sectoral collaboration across all stages of the program. Strong partnerships between government and implementing partners, and then um, also on community engagement as a driving force. So I'll just quickly go through each of these. Um, So first we heard, repeatedly that um, having a strong base of evidence generated in Malawi in the local context um, really helped make a compelling case for this scale up. Um, So we heard how the NEET program generated data on the cost and impact of the intervention and this enabled then this information to be used to look at, you know, what what would this mean in terms of scale up, in terms of affordability, um, return on investment and impact. Um, And so what Was able to be generated first, and on the cost side, um, the cost to deliver the nutrition actions through these CBCC centers was um, lower. Were lower than expected, um, lower than expected compared to kind of preconceived notions of what it it might cost to deliver through this existing platform, as well as relative to other programs that were run by the government. Um, the early year's investment uh, showed a strong return on investment from the package that was delivered, and the impact um, that was estimated was viewed as um, justifying the cost of this investment. And so, um, a lot of this being generated ba- based on some of the data and inputs from, from NEPA as well as other research that was done in Malawi. Um, and it's not surprising that kind of the numbers speak to policymakers that this information get used, um, but this is something that we heard repeatedly, especially kind of building this economic case for investment really was um, a driving point and sticking point to policymakers on how to scale up and, and, and how to optimize. Um, okay, so one other note is that the NEAT program was delivered through uh, a collaboration between three sectors, and this translates also to the early years investment. This includes the Ministry of Gender, who coordinate the care groups and the CBCCs, the Ministry of Agriculture, who run the Agricultural Extension Officer Network, as well as the Ministry of Health. Um, and so the program delivered by Save the Children, it was designed as kind of a consultative process with both national level government plus local government to deliver the program um, and were consulted through all stages of the design. Um, And so in part that kind of led to a feeling of ownership over the program but also to the results which in a sense um, made the numbers kind of speak louder in that sense. Uh, The next point was on partnerships between government and local partners. So local partners in Malawi, Save the Children, delivered the ECD program. Um, has a history of working in in, um, the thematic area and a strong sense of trust with the government. Chancellor College um, led some part of the data collection and really brought research in a local context. And then IFPRI, as we heard, um, provided technical assistance and capacity building. one of the key kind of underlying notes here, of what really you know, there was a strong partnership uh, and model based on that on these partners. But what was important was translating evidence to local policymakers. So a need to kind of have this highly technical data and information um, and translate it in a sense of what speaks str- most strongly to the policymakers and the conversations that are ongoing in an opportunistic way on how to kind of um, push the agenda forward. Um, The last note was on community engagement as a driving force of this program. Um, There were um, mechanisms to engage with the community, get feedback, and and have it kind of the the program adapt in and of itself and saw as in in terms of local government this important aspect of the program um, and it being forward, moving forward. Um, so that was kind of a very quick run through, I'm happy to share more through the discussion. I want to say thanks to each of the presenters, they've had a hand in, in the case study as well as to save the children, each of the sectors, uh, government uh, stakeholders that um, were involved in the in the development of this. And then I'll just end on a point on where we're going with this next. So as I mentioned, RFID's role in SEAMS is looking at the policy relevance. Um, And through that, we're documenting examples and and stories of success on how evidence has been used in nutrition programming and multi-sectoral nutrition programming, um, uh, uh, how economic evidence has been used to advance the policy and programming discussions. And so uh, if you would like to discuss more, please contact us, or if you have stories and examples to share, please do share. Thank you.
0: Uh, thanks, Mary. So uh, that concludes the four panel presentations. Uh, next, we're going to have Julie and then Natalie uh, sort of to offer some discussion ideas. Then we'll have the Q&A.
7: Great, thank you, Dan, and thank you to ALO and the team for inviting me to be part of this panel today. I think it's really uh, exciting to see these results, Um, and I congratulate also the presenters for their great presentations. Um, So I think this is actually an excellent segue from Mary's presentation, because I wanna dive a little bit deeper into um, this policy piece and how this evidence has actually been used to inform policy and programming in the case of the World Bank. So Mary briefly mentioned this investment that the World Bank has made. It was approved by the Board of Directors last December and became effective this summer. So it's a $60 million investment, um, which is essentially to scale up the NEEP, as you saw from or the, you know, the approach that was piloted by the NEEP, as you saw per Mary's slide. So, um, you know, I think these types of results are really exciting for those of us who, uh, you know, want to see multi-sectoral nutrition programming work and who want to see this kind of evidence being brought forth. Um, And so, as part of my commentary, yeah, I I just, um, this may be... (laughs) You know, n- not what you usually hear in these seminars, but um, I wanted to go through the process of how this happens uh, from a World Bank perspective. So, to start off, there needs to be a letter of interest that comes from a high level government official to make a request for financing. Um, And so, you know, this sounds very simple, it's an expression of interest, but it has to come from a high-level representative. This is typically the minister of finance. So this should trigger a thought of, okay, economic analysis, that is very critical when we're talking about a minister of finance. The minister of finance is also a person who's controlling all the budgets of every line ministry and so who obviously is bugged probably day and night about how this program is gonna be a better investment than that one, et cetera. So that's the first um, level of convincing that needs to be made. Um, And and this is especially difficult, I think, in the social sectors where the uh, results are not necessarily as immediate or tangible as results you would get from investing in other sectors. But once you get that guy on board, um, then you can move on to the World Bank Country Management Unit. And so the letter makes it to the World Bank. And then the Country Management Unit is yet another level of decision making. The Country Management Unit for Malawi, for example, has a finite financing envelope that they then need to decide how they will invest. Um, and so at this level, those the decisions at that level are also going to be based on um, the partnership framework that exists in the country. So that's over a five-year period. There's, you know, okay, we're deciding to invest, um, you know, in whatever, health or social protection. And so that's going to dictate whether uh, this request can be fulfilled or not. And then, of course, um, whether the project that's being proposed is actually aligned with, um, you know, the the basic goals of the World Bank to reduce poverty and to boost shared prosperity. So those are kind of two layers um, that I think are really important to mention and that dig just a little bit deeper to show how much this evidence actually matters to have in your hands and to be able to present when you are trying to scale up these types of interventions. Um, And so um, I guess, You know, I I just really want to highlight this point of this combination of factors. You have, you know, on one end an enabling environment, which um, Mary has very systematically looked at, and I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, obviously we know that that's important, but what does that actually look like? And then combine that with, you know, a rigorous um, evidence and that's relevant for programmers or, you know, for, for actual implementation. So the combination of those two factors is really what you need in order to be able to scale up these interventions at, to the level that we're seeing now. Um, so kudos to the team, I think this is really exciting, and I think that, um, you know, having just this kind of indicator of large-scale investment um, is actually a very important marker of how successful your your trial has been. Um, now, the, the only other thing I wanted to raise, um, and this is kind of a plea that I think, you know, it would be interesting to explore how uh, the maternal side can be taken into account a little bit more. I think we, as a nutrition community, are. Mm-hmm. Um, very much understanding that we need to be uh, taking mothers into account more. I think it's no surprise to any nutritionist that there's a strong link between maternal nutrition and child outcomes. Um, in fact, Jeff Leroy makes that point about the causality in his his recent paper with Ed Frangillo. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a plea to the team to consider or explore how this type of platform could be used. Um, To look at how you can kind of wrap maternal nutrition into this. Um, So I'm sure it will take some creativity, uh, but, you know, it could be that small tweaks in the program, seeing that you've already seen some of these spillover effects, especially on the younger siblings, um, what are some ways that we can think about, yeah, making these small program tweaks so that we actually can go one step further and have something that's a little bit more comprehensively addressing the problem. So I will stop there. Thank you.
8: So, thank you very much, and thank you again for inviting me, our Lord, to come here. Uh, so, I'm Natalie Voschnik from Save the Children. I'm the senior nutrition advisor for Save the Children UK. I'm leading on the Save UK-led nutrition portfolio, and but I was during the whole period of the NEEP project. I was the um, Te- main technical advisor from Save the Children, supporting this project. So I feel sort of very personally attached to it, and continuously looking for opportunities to move it forward uh, within Save the Children. So I just wanted to reflect. Um, it was great to hear from you, Julie, on you know how this has been used with the World Bank, and I wanted to reflect a bit about how what this means for Save the Children. Um, you know, I think we consider this really. I guess the kind of success of the ideal way of doing programming and generating and using evidence. Uh, so it's kind of the gold standard, I would say. And I think from you know, two th- things about that is I think one, it was really came from a, a problem that was identified on the ground level. I mean, our field staff that were working on these ECD programs for over so many years and understand them very well just every day could see that they could not meet their ECD objectives unless they addressed this food thing. You know, as Aisha was saying, the preschools was closed, children would not come unless there was school and the communities are providing the food to the schools, the preschools. And so this lack of food thing was just a a problem that they had identified. And so uh, their response on the ground was to, 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 Learn to sort of take an approach that was developed in a big, huge USAID livelihood project, and just transplant the sort of livelihood agriculture training on next to these preschools to address the issue. Um, And so, you know, everybody felt that that worked really well, but we didn't, of course, have this evidence. Um, And then, so meanwhile, there was this uh, another big World Bank investment, protecting a big RCT, protecting early childhood development. Um, and Save the Children was involved in that, and uh, they found that when they were looking for the school, the preschools to do their baseline survey, they found that 50% of them listed on the register of the ministry were actually closed because uh, they weren't functional, in fact, they weren't functioning, and one of the main reasons they said was because of lack of food. Uh, And so we, at the same time, had this nice sort of pot of funding from the Conrad Hilton Foundation to wrap around this project. And with that, we were able to look at, try and understand what was happening because we found that some communities were able to provide the food and some weren't. And in fact, there was a whole range of characteristics about the community, about leadership and coordination and so on that meant that some could and some couldn't. And so we were able to there develop a little bit, start developing a little bit this sort of building the community capacity to provide more food, nutritious foods for the health centres. So I think what was you know the solution really came from the ground up uh, and I think it was very much recognized by the Ministry of Gender and Social Welfare because we were working closely with them and so I think you know the fact that it came up that way is also because over time it was just this recognized problem but we didn't have the evidence and so I think the second point is that uh, you know we then worked with Aulo and IFPRI and just this Fantastic partnership, which is like um, the example of a partnership we always want to have. Um, You know, and with a bit of funding from this uh, PATH nutrition embedding evaluation program, we have to remember NEEP actually is that. Um, We were, you know, able to generate all of this evidence that you've seen today. And actually that made all the difference because it became, instead of being this wonderful approach that we've implemented somewhere, which we do, you know, you go going to see these programs everywhere, you know, Save the Children's in 120 countries do, doing brilliant things, but so, it's so rare that we actually have the evidence to show that it's having an impact. So this was, you know, what really made the difference is we have all of this evidence and continuously papers coming out. It's amazing for them. <laughs> so, I think for us it's, you know, uh, uh, really, um, uh, kind of a unique example. It's also quite unique because it's bringing together three sectors that don't tend to work together. I mean, Save the Children is a multi-cross sectoral organisation, so you would think that we should be working really well across sectors, and we try to. And I say nutrition, agriculture work well, fairly well together, but ECD is not something that has always been so inherently um, an approach that works together. So I think we feel that there's, this is a huge opportunity for us as an organisation to at least try and um, replicate this approach in different places. I know that this preschool lack of food in preschools issue is not just in Malawi. It's you know Mozambique. We have the same problem in so many of the other c- countries in, Af- you know, in Africa. So we'd very much like to, uh, you know, replicate it in other ECD programs, but also in nutrition and agriculture programs to try and sort of use this ECD platform as a as a platform that actually we tend to not think of using that much. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say using, but you know. Um, So, one of the challenges that we face in sort of replicating is, you know, that often our funding sources are very siloed. It's sort of, we get nutrition funding, we get agriculture funding, we get ECD funding, and it's it's sometimes difficult to be creative and find ways of bringing these together. I think it's great that we have this, there's this World Bank um, funding in Malawi, but that's actually quite rare. Um, the reason we were able to do that in Malawi was because we had this private sort of child sponsorship funding quite a, you know, a few million a year where you can actually be creative and respond to a problem in the way you believe is the way to respond as opposed to uh, – so that is a real opportunity. So I think for us the next steps would really be to you know, do a lot more dissemination with our own projects and you know, targeting different countries and see also I guess working with the various donors and different calls that come out to see how we can do – integrate – uh, this approach more thank you very much um,
0: please don't forget to use the microphone um, we'll start from the room and then we'll go Uh, online in a few minutes to take some questions. So maybe it'll take a few questions at a time. Um, You can address them to individual people on the panel or or just generally. Does anyone want to start? Okay, go ahead. Uh, Please. Uh, for the benefit of the people here and those online who may not see you, uh, introduce yourself just before you ask your question. Thanks.
8: I'm Lynn Brown, and my questions directed at you, Arlo. Um I thought your results were really interesting in in terms of the one-year impact and then the follow-on afterwards. And you know, one of the results you almost presented negatively in saying, you know, a year later the other people had caught up. Um, and I wondered how much you understand of the process in the different results of that. Um, when you say, I mean, if people have caught up, that's actually a good thing. Um, some of your graphs indicate that the control has improved, but the NEEPS group has gone down a little. And I wondered what the trade offs and actual percentages are. Are your NEEPS groups still significant 12 months out?
9: Julie Kurtz from Ifri, um, and, and just to follow that up, but I wasn't sure how where the control groups were, and so is there what the possibility of spillover there? Um, my question is, is related to I know that that the outcomes measured had to do more with um, childhood nutrition, um, looking at. I'm spacing on some of these, but the quantitative measures. But I was wondering about the role of measuring leadership, and and that this you mentioned is such a ground up initiative, and so the the leadership development in these communities that has um, a continuous impact and and informs the the kind of ground level leadership that these things are possible, and you can be creative and 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 merge different programs. So is there a place for measuring that, even in the economic cost, instead of just measuring, like, what's the impact of child by cost? Um, but what is the, the value of the education and leadership development on the ground, and how do we include that in a measurement?
0: Thank you. Uh, let's take one more here. I can lend my mic. Mm-hmm.
4: Thank you. <coughs> my name is Hap Uh I'm from Save the Children. I'm uh, Natalie's counterpart from from U.S. side. Uh, so it's a great work, and I appreciate all the world, world Bank for funding, you know, scaling it up to a different level. One of the questions I have is because these are young children and there is a provision of food, did you look at the food safety for these young kids?
0: Uh, Lucy, do we? Ha- I want to go online before we go in the room again, and then we'll, we'll give the panelists a chance. Do we have okay. some questions?
10: Yes, we do. Um, so the first one is for Aisha from Antoine Huchi from Millennium Challenge Corporation um, in Benin, West Africa. What's the work that she did about saving church children? And does Save the Children, uh, the organization, have representatives in Benin? If not, can we propose something like that in Benin? The second one is um, Basudev Mahapatra from India, how empowered has the community been through the intervention to apply the learnings for their own development? And the last one is Gilbert Miki, a PhD research student at the School of Agriculture Policy and Development, who is focusing his research on homegrown school feeding in Malawi. I am most impressed by the work done. My question is in re- to reference uh, to the agricultural component. How is the NIPI engaging smallholder farmers in their interventions? Thank you.
0: Okay, that's a lot. So <laughs> let's come back to the room. Maybe Aloe will kick us off. Thank you. So Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Lynn.
4: Thank, great question. And then I'll, I'll pass the, the mic around sure. to, to answer the other ones. Uh, no, it's a really good point. So we, we've just started to, to sort of um, than the depth of the, 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 the data for the sustainability side. And you know, there are not many uh, previous examples we can build on, so in terms of you know, what do we mean by sustainability and sustained effects. So I can tell you for sure that um, by, by design, because of the ethics of it, the control group received some of the treatment post one year, right? So we are expecting to see some catch up. And Aisha can maybe tell us more specifically about the, the specific activities. Um, there, there are also some some really nice spillovers in some ways by the communities talking to them because it's all in zomba so you know it's essentially one district and 60 communities so there is quite a lot of agroecological diversity in terms of geographical sort of distance they are not too far so you know you'd, you'd expect some of some of some of this to happen however what was really interesting was that some of these results and you know the the, the way in which the results presented themselves when we looked at these sustained effects that some of the differences that we found that were sort of substantive and statistically significant kind of made sense. So for instance, on the agriculture side, it was mostly driven by those crops that maybe took a, l- a little bit longer to, to, to harvest, like the fruits or, s- or some specific fruits that were uh, emphasized. Uh, the results on growth kind of made sense too. Um, the results on diets in some ways uh, you know, were mostly driven by maybe the catch-up activities that were being ha- uh, um, scaled up. And also, it was a much better year so the year we ran the trial, it was a very very tough year, um, and the differences that the intervention made were probably that substantive because the control group suffered a lot. So it's essentially mostly protective, uh, mostly protective effects. But it'd be great, you know, this is we've just started to unravel some of the data, and I think some of the qu- answers to the next questions will sort of give you a, a sense of of where we are in terms of sort of unpacking the community and gender dynamics of it. Um, Amy, do you wanna talk a little bit about the leadership? Yeah.
5: Um, Thanks, that was a great question on the leadership. Um, You picked up on a really important component of the program, which was that community engagement. Um, So we weren't uh, quantitatively measuring leadership per se, um, but two ways we kind of saw some of those results. One being that there was quite a lot of qualitative work done as well. And some of that work really unpacked um, the role of households in the program, and particularly um, the role of women in the program in contributing to both the school meals. Um, There were CBCC committees. That was something we didn't really discuss that much, but that's where some of um, the leadership, I think, would come through as well, that they were organizing schedules in terms of trading off um, time invested in the program, in caregiving, in meal preparation, in caring for the school gardens as well. Um, So that was certainly a really important part um, that came out in our qualitative data. Another way that um, we were incorporating some of those costs as well, because you mentioned, of course, this is a, a cost, an opportunity cost to those beneficiaries in the program. So we actually did include that in our economic costs. Um, any labor contributions by households um, were costed into this analysis, um, so a part of my dissertation work actually was measuring some of the time use of women who were contributing their time to the program. Um, so luckily we were able to use some of that data and assess what those labor costs would be in those contributions and include it in uh, the total cost analysis.
2: Okay, uh, there were a bunch of questions for me, so I think I'm going to start with the easier one, which is uh, what my role was in NEEP. As I already said, I was part of the implementing team, which meant that I was coordinating, supporting, as well as managing the program activities, which essentially entailed um, facilitating the trainings by making sure that we engaged with um, identifying the trainers that we needed for this training. So in this case, we mainly used the Minister of Agriculture Extension workers, um, as well as Chansa College, who were providing the trainings on the nutrition aspect of it, and other NGOs that are working especially on village savings and loans because at the time that we were working on this, Save the Children was not doing it actively. As such, we needed to uh, kind of outsource these trainers. But also, um, I think the main part of my role was to engage in these communities. I think as you saw from you know, with the video, all the pictures that were presented, I was really in the community pretty much every single day. If it's not on monitoring the activities, it would actually be in facilitating some of these activities that I mentioned. Um, now to follow up on that, um, whether Save the Children is is in Benin. Um, I'll let Natalie answer that because I'm not very sure.
8: Um, I don't know is the answer. (laughs) We don't have big nutrition. I'm not sure ECD. But anyway, I think what I would suggest is that if you can find someone to go and travel to Malawi and go and see the approach and then come back and bring it back to Benin, something like that, because we are still implementing this within our sponsorship funded programming in Malawi. So sometimes that's the best way of transferring lessons. Yeah,
2: And I think to follow up on what Natalie has said, um, this um, intervention, it's easily replicated. It can because essentially what we did use were community structures that are already existing. And I feel like in most African countries, for example, where you have farmers, like households that are doing this, it would be so easy to replicate it. So uh, I would say go for it. And Save the Children is more than happy to actually offer technical su- assistance on that regard. Um, Following up on how NIP is engaging uh, smallholder farmers, most of the targeted beneficiaries that we used essentially are what you would call smallholder farmers. So I would say that the project all throughout did engage uh, these smallholder farmers. And this is mainly because Malawi is a country where about 80% of households are involved in farming activities and Agriculture was a key component of this intervention. Uh, the last one on food safety for the kids. Using CBCs as a, uh, CBCs as a platform meant that the food contributions that were coming in were actually from the parents of these preschool children as well as the community members, which meant that they we're preparing their own food and For us, what we could do was only to facilitate trainings on food safety, but because the food was coming from themselves, it was easier to make sure that the food that they were providing to these kids was actually safe and secure and good for the
0: kids. Thanks very much, Ayesha. Before we go back to the audience, um, I wonder if Aloe and team could respond to two of the comments that came from Julie and Natalie um, in their discussion comments. So, from Julie in particular, um, she says, "Good job. Let's do more." Um, so, it, so could this also improve maternal nutrition, and, and would that, you know, is that a stretch, or, or could that be wrapped into what's already being done? And Natalie's question was also one that I had very much in mind, which is sort of how how did NEEP really solve kind of the food thing for, for preschools, right, and, and food availability when you're relying on local agriculture. So that seems like a, a really critical dimension of the success in it, as what you said, although was a really hard year. So if you could comment on that, too. Sure. Thanks. So I'm gonna pass it to Amy and Amy to talk about women. And
4: I don't know if Judy noticed, but when she was talking, we were all having a, <laughs> a nod. And then I'll maybe touch on the second question.
5: Okay, um, so, so I think that's a, a great point you were making about uh, mothers and engaging them. And I think there's ample room for that in terms of um, within the kind of setup of the nutrition trainings. Um, but I'm gonna turn it on its head a little bit and say I'd actually like to see the men <laughs> engaged more. Uh-huh. Um, Not to pass the buck, but I I think the the mothers are already contributing a lot to the program, and that was actually part of our concern in measuring their time use, is making sure that the program wasn't overburdening them, because they already have so many tasks. Um, Aside from what some people think, people aren't just sitting around with nothing to do. In the countryside, they're quite busy, so um, one thing that we noticed was that men were definitely contributing to... CBCC construction and maintenance and some participation on the committees, but I think there is probably some more room for male engagement on nutrition and on the nutrition side to help support those activities, not only just in the CBCCs, but also promoting it within the household um, where they may have a a role in decision making. Maybe you want to speak more?
4: What did you say about your time, the results that you found specifically on time? Oh, yeah.
5: Well, Aldo wants me to promote a little bit these <laughs> results. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so we actually, as, as part of my dissertation, I looked at women's time use specifically in the program. Um, and looking at uh, how female participants may have been, uh, whether or not they were burdened by their participation. And so that was in terms of their caregiving, uh, as well as helping out with the meals um, and so on. And so what I found is we we had two data points. So one after six months of program implementation and then after 12 months. So at six months, which was during the lean season, um, I did find a slight increase um, in women's time use related to the program um, at six months it was not uh, a large amount of time it was about 30 minutes extra devoted to uh, contributing to cbcc activities but then after 12 months um, there really wasn't a difference between the control and the treatment groups um so of course you know any amount of extra time you still want to make sure that that's not a burden and that women aren't being stressed by this contribution Um, so it was looked qualitatively as well coming from the words of the women themselves looking at was this a burden to you and what did this mean um, for you to contribute. And so the women basically found this to be a very worthwhile use of their time and they said they were able to rotate responsibilities among other women in the community um, so that they didn't feel like it was, it was a great burden to them. Um, but Aisha actually did some further work um, mm-hmm. to, to highlight that and she can speak about uh, women's stress and well-being.
2: Thank you, Emi, um, and Aulo for putting Emi and I on the spot. Uh, I just submitted my dissertation, I think two weeks ago, that's actually looking at the effect of this intervention on um, tenor nutrition outcomes, basically looking at BMI as well as MUAC, and the stress levels of these women. So I only looked at the one year results, that, that's one year after the impact evaluation. And even though there was no change in these main outcomes um, between the control groups as well as the intervention groups, I think I wouldn't consider it a now result per se, uh, considering that with um, nutrition sensitive programs, Uh, There's that complexity as well, and for us, uh, our main focus were actually the children under the study, not the women. And having seen that data, I think there is room for further research, and which is what I'm thinking through with lawyer and hopefully work on a PhD on that. Thank you.
4: And Dan, so I'll I'll take over your second question, which is... um, in some ways, um, maybe under research from our perspective, just because we don't have an ag economist on the team. But we did try and unpack some of what was going on. So in terms of being able to provide food, um, so this is relative to the control, right? So um, these effects were mostly protective, and they were significant and substantive. But if you look at the levels at which the food was being provided, they were still pretty low. Um, so on, uh, the intent to treat effects were about you know, an extra maybe half day. Uh, over a five-day period. So the frequency were, you know, was was significant and meaningful, but still with a big margin to improve. And the fact that we didn't see any uh, sustained effects kind of highlighted how difficult it is actually for that food to be provided. So anecdot- not, not anecdotally, but you know, we went through quite a few discussions with SAVE and the government on this, particularly in the lean season. We had actually an extra data point in the lean season. Where we ab- actually sort of went back and looked at this, these same outcomes. And, Lin was just very, very difficult you know and um, me- most cbccs didn't actually provide any meals. Um, I think sort of when we went back to nline it was post harvest so you know it was really sort of uh, resources were you know weren't as thin uh, so there's really um, these other foods that had uh, had been uh, planted you know had had been harvested so there's definitely a little bit more availability but in terms of how that fed into the preschool meals, that effect died out right so there is really, and that's I think a key challenge that we highlighted to the government. So there are going to be times in the year when the communities are just going to be too stressed. Uh, it's going to be too much of a burden to provide this food. So if, if you could provide, and you know we we're talking with the Food Program for example and other partners, to sort of tap into their activities to kind of provide that sort of collaborative framework that could really enhance the services year-round to these kids in a meaningful way. So the behavior change can only do so much, right? The information alone can only do so much. But there were plenty of information constraints that we filled, but there were economic constraints too. And there's you know very little that could be done uh, around that. But we also talked to the government about providing some financial incentives to, to try and deal with some of these trade-offs, economic uh, uh, trade-offs. And that's you know potentially some work that we could do around scenarios using the, the data that um, uh, Amy was presenting. Do you want to say
8: something? Well, I, didn't yeah, add Can I add to that. Yeah, I, I kind of feel there's an important point that Al was saying about a certain season, but, and this is completely anecdotal, but just visiting some of these communities, and, um, and I think it was sort of previously Tunit, but some of the communities we visited where they were receiving food from other organisation, free food. And I remember very well one community, and they didn't have any food, and they said, yeah we can't we've closed the cbccs can't do anything because the food hasn't come and i felt that it was having a negative in fact that they've had received all this free food and they just oh it's not our problem anymore whereas you know when we've done this qualitative research and gone to certain communities i mean the great example was was it with you aula where we went into a visit and there was this village chief who was just loved this preschool he thought it was the best thing and he'd given a whole load of his own land to to be the sort of preschool food production thing and he was just the champion and I think that made, that's what and so I think it links up to someone's question about leadership but I think that makes all the difference and it's just really building the community capacity and motivation and interest is super important rather than just freebies all the time, you know.
0: Thanks. Um, Yeah, let's go back for additional questions. Ali.
7: from IFRI, thank you so much for your presentations. I was just wondering about the component on parental uh, stimulation, and I was wondering, so was it only to the mothers, or also to the fathers, and if it was only to the mothers, were the fathers okay with it, was it hard to change whatever costumes they had before, and how did you measure it? Thank you.
0: You had a question here, yeah? yeah.
6: Hi, it's Zakatia, Clements Worldwide. So a lot of these countries uh, that are dealing and struggling with nutrition and agriculture also are struggling with clean water. And so are there any considerations agriculturally in terms of the types of crops that are being introduced and the amount of water that's being utilized in order to produce those crops? Thanks.
0: There was another here. Go ahead, please, and then we'll come up front. We'll reverse the order, that's fine. All right,
11: uh, my name is Casey Das. I am a professor of agricultural engineering at the University of Georgia. And this year I'm a Jefferson Science fellow at USAID. Um, what I'd like to know is that uh, I, I have not uh, as much familiarity with uh, Malawi. So if you would please uh, just kind of paint a picture about the community that you worked with as to what their uh, livelihoods are, educational level, is there chronic diseases, is there access to water, and general uh, issues related to nutrition outside of the school program, but great work.
0: Thanks. Uh, There's one in the back, and then there was one.
7: Okay, sure. Hi, I'm Rachel Gilbert, also from IFPRI. Um, Just going back to the issue, of the particular season and a particular time, um, and other groups that were providing food. I'm aware that there are many disparate groups in Malawi who are providing food, especially during the lean season, especially during this time. And I'm wondering if, particularly because you had qualitative evidence and because you are working in Zomba, if you were able to account for specific other interventions that were not related to, even, you know just like Mary's meals, different school feeding, different um, smaller interventions that may have impacted these children, but particularly their siblings, um, as there are so many things happening at any given time in Malawi, so that's my question.
8: Thank you so much, everyone. Leanne King, a geospatial scientist and consultant. My question is concerning the project that you guys worked from to develop this, U.S. Livelihood Project. Just how that relates to the work that you've done, and what was done here in the U.S., and then also to follow up on the volunteers and personnel. How much of the personnel was accounted for by volunteer work, and what was the um, costs that you found would have been? You know, what would the costs have have been if there were no volunteers?
0: Thank you. Okay, so
4: let's come back here few of those uh, Balawi-specific questions. I'm, I'm dividing it up, I'm going to put you all on the spot, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not going to answer, I'm no, just digging d- around. Right. Right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, and I'll take the, the question from Rachel. And Nat, can you talk about UALA, the WALA project? I think I should start. Yeah, no, I will start. start.
2: I'll start. <laughs> OK, um, start with painting a picture of Malawi, especially Zomba, which happens to be a city that I've actually spent most of my life in. Um, I did my university there for my first degree. I worked there on this new project and my dad is actually from there, so he grew up there too, so it's home. Um, To answer your question, in terms of access to water, I think just like most rural communities um, the access to water is a problem in the sense that they have to use water from rivers Um, but with the coming in of NGOs that is changing so you do have boreholes across the rural areas especially in the community that we're working in but also um, most of these communities that we were working with, they had access to water where they could actually do irrigation because as part of the intervention, they were required to grow crops twice a year for winter cropping, which does require access to water. So the CPCCs specifically did have that. It might not be the case for all the households, but the CBCC's did. Um, In terms of illiteracy levels, uh, they're very high, um, and that is why for us, I think, working with these um, communities, it was best to use extension workers that were already placed in the communities because they already have a rapport with the communities, which makes it easier to engage with them. So the trainings that we were using, they were more in, Tweaking them to actually make sure that for an illiterate community, it could be easy for them to grasp. Um, chronic diseases. Um, Malawi, as you all know, it's, um, it's got high levels of HIV um, and AIDS, and CBCC's actually started with um, providing that environment for children that were orphaned for parents that died of HIV and AIDS. So that was the context of how CBCC started. Of course, that has changed, but I think that does paint the picture. Um, and nutrition as well. Um, we have one of the highest rates of stunting for children. I think as of last year, 2016, 2017, DHS data, uh, stunting was at 37%. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. Okay, Um, I think I'll pass it on to Amy before I continue.
5: Okay, in terms of uh, the volunteer time, um, I hope I'm covering all of this, but I think um, that's a great question in terms of thinking about what this would look like without this volunteer contribution. Um, as I as I presented earlier, it was about 16% of total cost, I think 24-25K roughly. Um, and we're also continuing to um, update this cost analysis. We are looking at different ways of valuing volunteer time. So looking at kind of upper and lower bounds in terms of whether we're using a minimum wage from Malawi and which version we're using. So we're going to be doing different sorts of um, kind of modeling and scenario building um, as part of our contribution to this policy process, collaborating with the World Bank and with R4D um, as well and with government, of course. Um, so that, yeah, that was really a, a critical part and something we're going to think through um, with them as they look forward to how it's going to be scaled up.
4: Maybe I'm just going to talk quickly to, to Rachel's question and then pass it over to Aisha and Natalie to argue about who's going to talk about Wala. <laughs> uh, no, Rachel, thank you very much, and, and, and it's a plug also to thank the, the, the Malawi office of IFPRI because you know the f- we had phenomenal support from you, from Bob Bolch, and the whole team, and I think I can't really underestimate the, the effect of having an IFPRI office there to allow for that whole policy dialogue that we were having. It was really fantastic, and, and particularly Nora, Nora Abraham, you know, and the, the contributions she made were really. Um, yeah, fantastic in terms of being able to 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 corral and and bring everybody together to discuss these across sectors. So, as you know, when, the first thing that struck me in Malawi was you know when I got to Zomba. You know, you drive around or you walk around and there's a a white Jeep with a different uh, logo from every single uh, NGO, every single organization you think about. It's going to be there in Zomba. It's going to be there in Malawi. It's shocking. I I, I didn't realize the extent of it. So it was something that was really apparent that we had to right away, right from the start, get a handle on this. Because you're not going to be working in isolation. So, you know, we had a lot of questionnaire time, actually, just to figure out exactly what else was going on you know, and try and sort of make sure we're capturing all of that and making sure it's all balanced at baseline. You know, hopefully the randomized sort of design takes care of that. Um so that's the the, the easy answer to a, a difficult question <laughs> that we always have to face. Um I think, you know, it would be really great to try and see if there's particular synergies between other activities and other programs like, you know, Mary's Meals who are sort of you know, targeting that sort of meal component, or the WFP is targeting that meal component, and how we can work in synergy, right? Rather than providing a disincentive, right, by providing some of these fortified blends at a specific period of time, use it as a way to, you know, maintain these positive sort of spirals that the
0: communities are, are doing, rather than uh, acting as a, as a break. I think. Ha- Ayesha, we have time for just one more minute of follow-up, and then we're gonna go to closing remarks, so you get the last word before that. Okay, thanks. (laughs)
2: Um, But I wanted to answer the question on the crops that we used. Um, We had a lot of consultation with the Minister of Agriculture considering that they knew um, the ecological zones of Zomba better than we did. So most of the crops that we used were actually informed by them. But also considering that this was a behavior change intervention, the one thing that we didn't want was to introduce something that we thought would be alien to the community. So for example, Malawians normally grow crops and uh, like a maize, for example, we thought it was best to bring in the orange maize which really is just something that is biofortified, not really different from what they normally used. But also an example on the vegetables, we wanted spinach because we actually thought that it had a very good nutritious value, but because the communities were not used to that, we had to change that to amaranthus. So I think that answers your question,
0: yeah. Uh, thank you, I wanna thank everyone and give, uh, Harold actually gets the, the very last word.
11: I have to thank everyone for what has been a fascinating session. I mean, apparently there are people at the window clamoring to hear more <laughs> uh, and no mean feet because we're at the 12th floor. Um, so it's very, very interesting. Um, now we heard from the very beginning in Dan's introduction, we've heard many times the, the word platform mentioned. And that, I think that's very important. Uh, years ago, decades ago, people were talking about integrated nutrition planning, uh, recognizing the model. About how many different uh, underlying causes there are to malnutrition, but in practice that wasn't working very well. So people started to think, well, plan uh, multi-sectoral, but act sectoral, and even that had its problems because of the incentive structure of acting sectoral. When you get down to a platform which is community, and you're thinking globally and acting locally, and that sets up an automatic multi-sectorial potential. Uh, And one thing you find, nothing succeeds like success. When you've got the community working together, then you see other ways of working together. You get the motivation, and that's what you're seeing there. You you mentioned you've got some side things. Somebody asked in the audience, well, how's that gonna affect other things that you didn't yet mention, including depression, including stress levels. Having the community together uh, and and seeing that it can do something together sets up your social capital, sets up a potential for doing more. Um, As far as where you can go in the future, because one ends a bit with going forward, um, think about it both on the extensive margin and the intensive margin. And looking at it from the extensive margin, um, there are some issues that you're going to have to think. I'm, I'm very pleased, having spent 20 years at the World Bank, to see the speed on which information went into project design. It doesn't always happen that way. And it'd be great if you document that and share it uh, more widely. Um, but you still have a challenge. With all due respect, Julie, to your managerial capacities, you're not going to have a cadre of AISHAs. In, in, in the villages, um, and so how does one change this model when you go over to a nationwide model which becomes top down by its very nature. You don't put $60 million into Malawi from the ground up, it comes from the top, and you're going to have to consider how to get that social capital, how to get that community uh, event, which, which is, I think, central to what's, what we're seeing here um, as you go to scale, and what's it going to mean to costs, what's it going to mean to outcomes? There's a lot of questions that are going to have to be uh, addressed. At the intensive margin is a very different issue. Um, we see, and I don't know. Again, as a fair question was asked uh, about the convergence, is that a good thing or a bad thing? If it's regression to the mean, it's neutral, but it does mean that our outcome in nutrition, in stunting, is still a transitory outcome, the outcome that we want for the long run, and this must go into your model, Amy, I trust, in your long-term model, obviously the life save, that's very permanent, um, but as far as the, the productivity, it comes through the cognitive development. And the cognitive development results seem to be uh, quite extensive, uh, quite quite impressive. Now the question is, is this going to be, also is it gonna fade out, because so much in the early childhood development literature is showing fade out. Now I actually argue it's not fade out, it's eclipse. It comes back a few years later and and there's evidence for that. Um, But there is a question on how that works and how it integrates with other preschool and school level programs. I mean, and and there goes a bit to the issue of sustaining school feeding um, because Most economists, most people, education specialists, say the rates of return to education are particularly high for preschool, and they decline, although they're still high as you go on. But school feeding programs are almost never in preschool, partly for funding issues, partly management issues, partly because they're out of the Ministry of Education often. If they're in the community, as Natalie pointed out, they may be very sustainable. But then what happens next? Where do they go from the time they are two to the time they are five or six? Can you get that long-term integration as part of your intensive margin to build on these promising early childhood results? So I'm gonna take the liberty, even though it's not my role, to invite you to come back in a year, and in three years, uh, to see how this takes forward uh, from a very promising result. So, thank you all.
0: Harold, thanks a lot. And thanks to Alo and the entire team and everyone for taking time to come today, those of you in the audience and those online. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks.